America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great day to seriously catch up with all of the legal challenges that are being faced by the GOP front runner for the presidency. His name is Donald J. Trump. He's giving a speech in New Hampshire right now where he is way ahead in the polls. But uh, what is the impact going to be if uh, they finish this rape trial? <laughs> Sorry, it is a rape trial uh, in New York. Uh, or if uh, Mike Pence goes ahead and testifies to Jack Smith, the special prosecutor, which looks increasingly likely unless President Trump can get last-minute intervention by the Supreme Court. And what about the situation in Georgia where Fonnie Willis has uh, actually um, postponed uh, some of the results from the grand jury? What does that all mean? Nobody better to try to straighten it all out than Andy McCarthy, uh, one of the finest legal minds in the country. He is a senior fellow at the National Review Institute and NR contributing editor, a veteran federal prosecutor. Uh, Andy, it's great to talk to you. You've been following the situation with E. Jean Carroll and the charges of battery and defamation against uh, President Trump with unspecified damages, right? Uh, that's right. That's right, Michael. Yeah. So uh, unspecified damages means that uh, this is a civil trial. It's not a criminal trial despite the fact that the uh, some of the charges against uh, Trump, uh, which from 20 years ago uh, would have would have been criminal if they had been filed earlier, right? If the if the state of New York, if uh, E. Jean Carroll had made a timely uh, <clears throat> complaint to the police, uh, when she says this happened, which it looks to me, Michael, there's been she said back and forth on exactly when um, this is it happened approximately 27 years ago. But I think she's fixed now on uh, a date in the <clears throat> I think in the spring um, or early part, at least of uh, of 1996, and that has something to do with one of the um, contemporaneous reports she made. Uh, to, was to a friend who had written a story for New York Magazine about Trump, which was uh, the story was published in, uh, I think it was February of 1996. So I think that's helping her try to fix the date. But um, if she had made a timely complaint uh, to the police, then if they thought there were was enough evidence, then uh, she could have been prosecuted. Uh, she didn't. And then her time to bring a civil action for uh, battery passed. But in the wake of the Me Too uh, stuff, New York's legislature, I think under, when Cuomo was governor, um, enacted a reprieve of the statute of limitations, which allowed untimely claims to be brought for civil purposes. So. Uh, that is why she, last November, as soon as that window opened, she filed this uh, rape claim. 
Okay, you've been following the the trial so far. Uh, she has been giving uh, her testimony, which sounds uh, uh, vivid. What, where do you think this is going? I think it's an interesting case, and it's one I think that sort of sailed under the radar. I, w- I wonder why that is. I think in my own case, um, I, I have to say that, you know, not only is there just like, you know, there's life is short and there's limited bandwidth for all the, <laughs> the Trump stuff that we have to, to cover. But the other thing was, I, I admit that I, when I saw her get interviewed uh, on by Anderson Cooper on, um, on CNN sometime back, um, I didn't think, I didn't think she made a great impression. I wondered, you know, whether she'd be an effective witness in front of a jury with no corroborating evidence. But I, you know, upon reading her full interview with Anderson Cooper, I thought, I think I was too dismissive at the time because when you put everything she said in context, it, it really wasn't as flaky as some of the excerpts I had seen. And her story, as she lays it out and as she has testified to it, you know, she's a she was a uh, advice columnist um, for Elle magazine for over 20 years, and she's a pretty good writer. Uh, so it's not surprising that she would tell a story that uh, you know hangs together well. But the interesting thing is, I, let me say two things, Michael. One is there's two contemporaneous reports she makes. One right after the alleged incident, and one within a day or two afterwards. Those witnesses are testifying uh, and will say that these contemporaneous reports happen. They don't have any obvious reason to risk perjury, uh, even if they don't like Trump. And then the other development I think people should understand is that in the wake of the church sex scandal and the Me Too stuff, uh, the law has been tweaked to make it a little bit easier to prove uh, sexual battery claims than it used to be. And there's some evidence that you can get in in these cases that ordinarily that you would not be able to get in under the rules of evidence. She's going to be able to present two other women uh, who claim that they have been sexually assaulted by Trump. And Judge Lewis Kaplan, who's the judge on the case, is going to allow the jury to hear the uh, the Access Hollywood video. So it's an interesting it's an interesting case, and uh, the the outcome could be some kind of financial award and damages uh, to E. Jean Carroll, right? Correct. The jury the jury would decide that. That's right. And <laughs> we've all seen uh, that the the hush money for porn star scandal really fizzled. I mean. Right now, there are more arguments between Jim Jordan and Alvin Bragg going on than between Stormy Daniels and Donald Trump. And uh, this could be different, though, no? I think so, because it's a much more serious allegation. I mean, I, I think Bragg's case is is frivolous uh, in the greater scheme of things, and I certainly don't think it warrants um, prosecution. My own view of it is, for what it's worth, that I don't think we should be prosecuting former presidents or current presidential candidates unless it's a very serious case that the prosecutor can prove by convincing evidence. I agree with all the stuff about how no one's above the law, and if you had a case that met that standard, it should be brought. 
But I don't think Bragg's case is it. We may yet see a case like that, but I don't think Bragg's case is that. Um, this is different because it's a, it's, a, it's a sexual battery case. And if he is found guilty, um, it will be because all of this other evidence came out, including these other two women. I think, you know, it's impossible to predict these things. I can't predict anything anymore. It's so crazy. But um, I, uh, I, I think this would stick to him in a way if he's convicted and it's uphill. She doesn't have, uh, you know, forensic evidence or anything for something that happened 27 years ago. But if she's a compelling witness and they don't shake her on cross-examination and the jury finds him guilty, I think it's a it's an ugly allegation well, it doesn't doesn't help his presidential campaign the other thing I want to talk to you about and I'm glad you can stay for a few moments is Mike Pence apparently is going to testify for uh, the grand jury with Jack Smith and the special prosecutor uh, Trump is talking about potentially trying to have the Supreme Court intervene what is he afraid of with Mike Pence's testimony. It's something I don't begin to understand, but I know Andy McCarthy will. We'll be right back uh, with the one and only Andrew McCarthy of National Review, former federal prosecutor. Michael Medved Show talking with former federal prosecutor Andy McCarthy, senior fellow at the National Review Institute and a contributing editor at National Review. Um, Andy, beyond the trial that's going on in New York, a uh, trial for sexual battery and uh, defamation, uh, there's this issue of Mike Pence testifying for uh, Jack Smith the special prosecutor, about Trump's involvement in provoking the January 6th riot. We'll call it a riot, not an insurrection. Call it uh, just so as not to, to uh, go too far off in a legalistic direction. But uh, what what is President Trump so afraid of about the testimony of his vice president? I think, Michael, he, what he would like people to believe is that he's upholding the privileges of the executive branch and the importance of, uh, you know, free and frank exchange between top officials when tough decisions have to be made. That's the that's the public positioning of it. I, I, I think more strategically speaking, Pence is not a kind of a one off. He's a uh, he's one of course he's at the pinnacle of it but he's one of an array of top executive officials that um have been sought for testimony in this criminal investigation and trump wants to say, has taken the position across the board that none of these officials should be permitted to testify because it violates executive privilege i think if he were to not take that position with respect to pence uh, in the view of his lawyers, it would probably undermine the, you know, the other claims they've made along these lines with respect to other officials, because there's no material difference legally between the vice president and other top executive officials. Frankly, I think it's um, it, it 
it will hold up the works. And I, I think this litigation is, has delayed things more than it will have any real effect. The Supreme Court in the Nixon case made it pretty clear that in a criminal investigation, uh, they're going to have to testify. So he can fight this and he can fight it to the Supreme Court, but I don't think he'll see any success there. And uh, in in particular, what uh, what presumably Jack Smith is going to ask the vice president about was his communication uh, with President Trump, where President Trump was trying to get Mike Pence to intervene in the certification of the election. Yeah, that's right. The uh, I think the main theory, Michael, that that uh, Smith is exploring is whether he can indict Trump for obstructing a congressional proceeding. That would have been the January 6th uh, ratification of the electoral, the the state certified electoral votes is one where Pence would be presiding as uh, in his constitutional role as president of the Senate. So to the extent that Trump can be seen as putting corrupt pressure on Pence, and that would be what the allegation would be, uh, that would be obstruction of a congressional proceeding, and I think that's where he's going. And meanwhile, down in Georgia, uh, Fonnie Willis, the prosecutor in uh, Fulton County, Georgia, uh, has said that uh, they will have decisions on possible indictments sometime this summer. Does the continued focus on all of these legal problems, does the longer this stuff drags on, does that help Trump or does it harm him? I think there's a, you know, I think there are immediate effects and then um, sort of lagging indicators. For example, the Bragg case helped him uh, in a way even his own announcement didn't uh, work for him. But I think the cumulative effect of this stuff is a drag on him. And I also think what we're starting to see is that uh, these Democratic prosecutors, Sandy Willis is a partisan Democrat. That doesn't mean she doesn't have a case, but it's just it's worth pointing out. I, you know, to my mind, they really want to run against Trump. They think that, you know, I don't think they're very confident about Biden against a number of people, but they're confident that he'll beat Trump. And they like the mayhem that Trump under investigation brings to the Republican primary uh, contest. So I think, you know, part of the reason that, that you know, we had Bragg didn't want to have another hearing until the end of the year, and the judge accommodated him. Fannie Willis is now saying maybe sometime in the summer. We don't know what Smith's timetable is, if he has one. I think they like dragging this out. Um, they don't want to take a decisive action that might have the effect of ending Trump's campaign. Um, and at the same time, you know, they know stirring the pot stirs his base up. It, it helps his chance of being nominated. And I, I think they feel like they can drop the hammer on him at any point. So if he gets nominated, what I would expect to happen is, you know, if he gets nominated, that's when they'll proceed. So we would be waiting uh, the nomination. I think that would be in August of next year. Right. I mean, it's right. August of. <laughs> Can, yeah. How do you feel about the prospect of spending another more than a year 
with uh, all these various five proceedings against uh, President Trump? I guess it means I'll have a job. (laughs) (laughs) And what about his legal staff? I mean, they're they're pretty busy. Yeah, well, um, I, I have a feeling that the problem I really think for Republicans is we don't really know if we've hit bottom yet. You know, one of the interesting things you asked me about the the E. Jean Carroll case before, Michael, one of the interesting things that happened yesterday is Judge Kaplan obviously is losing patience with Trump and suggested that he might be obstructing the proceeding and might be held in contempt over some of the, you know, the social media stuff he's doing since the jury trial began. So I I just think Trump is very impulsive. Uh, There's a lot of progressive prosecutors in this country who think it's in their electoral interest and the Democratic Party's electoral interest to make investigations and cases against them. So this is a pretty dynamic situation. I'm not sure we've seen the bottom of it. Well, the DOJ has just indicated, the Department of Justice, where you used to work, that Trump can face civil lawsuits over the riot on January 6th. Uh, right. Is there any doubt that some of those lawsuits will be forthcoming? No, I think they already have lawsuits. They have the Democratic Congress, uh, members of Congress and Capitol Police who've already brought at least one case. And I think that has seven or eight defendants in it. So, no, those cases are coming for sure. Uh, Again, it's an extraordinary situation. uh, And uh, it is unprecedented, really, in our history. I'm so glad you're there to try to keep it straight. And we will check back in with you. Something is is going to happen. At least we'll get some kind of response on the E. Jean Carroll rape trial. That's uh, probably one of the first that's going to have a resolution of some kind. Uh, We will check in again soon with Andy McCarthy. Have a wonderful weekend. We will be right back. I'm a big Michael Medved fan. The Michael Medved Show. And on the uh, Michael Medved show, uh, there, there is just this brutal headline. And it's, it's one of those headlines that maybe is a, a little bit unfair overstating the case, but it certainly gets your attention. Uh, the uh, headline that appears at NBCnews.com, it says Nikki Haley, full colon, Biden will likely die within five years. That's kind of a nasty thing to say. Uh, And what this is based upon is a a statement that uh, that Nikki Haley made yesterday to Fox News saying that President Biden, who's 80 years old, as everybody knows, will likely die within five years and that supporters would have to count on Vice President Kamala Harris ah, uh, if he were to win re-election next year. Quote, he announced that he's running again in 2024 and I think that we can all be very clear and say with a matter of fact 
that if you vote for Joe Biden, you're really counting on a President Harris because the idea that he would make it until 86 years old is not something that I think is likely. And we're going to say we're not having that. We're not playing that. <laughs> OK, I, I understand that uh, it, it's um, a way of focusing attention on Kamala Harris. Uh, but uh, Haley, they say at NBC, has uh, framed her presidential bid around a new generation of leadership. In a speech launching her campaign, she suggested that politicians over 75 be required to take a mental competency test, a proposal that First Lady Jill Biden slammed as ridiculous. Uh, White House aides have also made efforts to demonstrate that the president is active and fit, the video announcing Biden's re-election campaign shows him jogging in his suit jacket. Doesn't everybody jog in a suit jacket? The uh, White House has also produced a spreadsheet showing Biden's rigorous travel schedule through the four months of the year, which surpasses that of then-President Barack Obama at a uh, comparable period in the 2012 campaign. Okay, uh, President um, Biden had a, a good night last night because, uh, basically not because of any particular exercise, but he seemed to be having a good time at a state dinner. And state dinners are a very big deal. It's a very big deal to get invited to a state dinner. And um, this was in honor of 70 years of alliance with the great Republic of South Korea, and the visit of President Yoon Suk-yeol from South Korea, who's here for a couple of days and seems to genuinely get along with uh, President Biden. And uh, he actually gave occasion for us to offer one of our periodic Medved mu music reviews. The Michael Medved Music Review. Covering the creative geniuses whose timeless artistry can move us, inspire us, and enrich our lives. And now, it's time for the Michael Medved Music Review. Okay, uh, last night uh, at this uh, big, uh, glamorous dinner for uh, President Yoon Suk-yeol, uh, Biden, right after dinner, invited him not to sing for his supper, but to sing after his supper. And uh, to everyone's surprise, and I kind of makes me believe the fix was in, that they probably had talked about this before, but... Uh, in any event, uh, the president of South Korea uh, agreed to sing. It sounded like this, 21A. We know this is uh, one of your favorite songs, American Pie. American Pie is one of the most popular songs Yes, that's true. Yes, when I was in going to school, it was one of my favorite songs. Well, we wanted to hear you sing it. <laughs> It's been a while, but... A long, long time ago 
<laughs> I can still remember how that music used to make me smile. And now I knew if I had my chains that I could make those people dance and maybe they'd be happy for a while. A February made me shiver with the paper I deliver. Bad news on the doorstep. I couldn't take one more step. I can't remember if I tried when I read about his widow bride. Something touched me deep inside the day the music died. <laughs> Okay, come on, he's good, right? I mean, aside from that, I, who knew that he spoke uh, English that well? Biden then made a presentation to uh, President Yoon Suk Yeol, and uh, this does seem like it was something of a surprise. Listen. I was a fellow who wrote that song, Mr. American Pie, that uh, couldn't be here tonight. But he wanted you to have his signed guitar. Don McLean. You Don McLean. Don McLean. Thank now, you the, so much. The, the next state dinner we're going to have, you're looking at the entertainment. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's uh, these are good moments. And again, just to put it in perspective, remember the original song. Uh, sounded like this without long, the Korean accent. Long time ago, I can still remember how that music used to make me smile. And I knew if I had my chance that I could make those people dance and maybe they'd be happy for a while. But February made me shiver With every paper I deliver Bad news on the doorstep I couldn't take one more step I can't remember if I cried When I read about his widowed bride But something touched me deep inside the day the music died. Okay, there, there's more uh, from uh, President uh, Yoon Suk Yeol. He highlighted the U.S. South Korean cultural exchange, uh, especially with K pop being such a sensation here in the United States now, uh, during his address to the joint session of Congress. Uh, we will. We will get to that uh, because that's uh, coming up as well. But in terms of a, a music review, uh, it's too bad Don McLean uh, wasn't uh, able to, to be there because, uh, again, this is certainly something worth celebrating. Is our alliance with South Korea amazing? Did you write the book of love? 
state visit to the United States by the president of South Korea, who, by the way, is known in South Korea as a conservative. And uh, some, like in many places around the world, the more conservative you are, the more likely it is that you're going to be pro-American. And uh, President uh, Yoon Suk-yeol of South Korea is certainly noted to be pro-American. And he explained about some of the cultural affinities uh, between the United States and South Korea, uh, making a uh, reference uh, toward the end of this uh, to the Bangtan Boys, the uh, known as BTS, uh, which is a South Korean boy band formed in 2010, which is wildly popular all around the world. The uh, band consists of Jin, Suga, uh, J-Hope, RM, Jamin, V, and Jungkook, who co-wrote or co-produce uh, their own material. Uh, and and so does, by the way, President Yoon Suk Yeol. Here he is speaking to our Congress. Korean movies, *A Parasite* and *Minari*, have won Oscars. Hollywood film *Top Gun* and *The Avengers* are loved by Koreans. I also love *Top Gun* and *Maverick*, <laughs> and *The Mission Impossible*. Big and Tom even Cruise if you fan. didn't know my name. You may know BTS and Blackpink. <laughs> BTS beat me to the White House, but I beat them to Capitol Hill. Okay, uh, again, it's a feel-good story because if, if you want to look at, there's a piece recently by David Brooks, which I think is very important for people to keep in mind which is about the power of American capitalism. And if you look at the transformation of Korea, uh, Korea at the end of the war in 1953, when uh, President Eisenhower, when he was running for president in 1952, had run on a promise, I will go to Korea and basically end the war, reach an agreement with the North Koreans and end the, the war and allow South Korea to continue. He did that in his first year as president, kept that promise. But since that time, at, at, at that time, Korea had the same gross national product uh, per capita as Ghana. It, it, it was devastated. There were literally hundreds of thousands of people who had been killed, including civilians and Koreans fighting for their country. And today, this country is, is prosperous, it's dynamic, it's the seventh biggest economy in the world. It's unbelievable. It uh, says something about uh, what uh, you can do and what business can do. And... Uh, there's some perspective here that was also uh, brought about the DeSantis war on Disney. And this is particularly true now with Disney suing Governor DeSantis. And uh, Kevin uh, McCarthy had, uh, had this to say. And look, this is his fellow Republican. And I think he's right. Uh, this is clip eight. 
I think the governor should sit down with him. I don't think the idea of building a prison next to a place that you bring your family is the best idea. <laughs> I think it would be much better if you sat down and solved the problems. But for the same point, if you're going to be a large employer in, inside this uh, state, you should also abide by the rules and run your business and don't think you should get into politics. Okay. Uh, again, uh, when you're talking about politics, uh, the Disney involvement in uh, their opposition to a piece of legislation, is that getting involved in politics, that companies shouldn't take a position on things that they care about? Even Marco Rubio actually disagreed on this issue of uh, Disney. He's, of course, senator from the same state where uh, Governor DeSantis is governor. Clip nine. I'm sorry, Congressman Raskin. I'm just... We spent every day from February on trying to get schools open. We knew that remote education... Other clip number nine. Well, I don't have a problem with taking on Disney. I think the fundamental question here is if, you, if what we're trying to fix is the fact that Disney had some arrangement that gave them governmental-type powers, I think it's a perfectly legitimate thing. I think where it gets problematic in the eyes of some people is when you start creating the idea, and I'm not saying we're there yet as a state, but the idea that somehow, like, if you run crossways with us politically, whoever's in charge, then, you know, you may wind up in the crosshairs of the legislature for political purposes to make a statement at you. So I don't think Disney's going to go anywhere. They've invested a lot of money and time, and I think that's going to find itself out. I, I do worry that if this happens too many times, businesses that are thinking about coming to Florida are saying, maybe we don't want to go there because if we get into a firestorm with them politically, um, they're going to come after our business. Again, a, a hypothetical issue, but I do think Disney is not different than any other company, any other company in the world, and I don't know why they should have government powers. That's something that was given to them a long time ago, and that's up for review every year. The, the legislature looks at it. And uh, something, something else that shows again the strength of a private enterprise here it involves some of the gratitude expressed by Brittany Griner, WNBA player who is back now and has recovered after having been incarcerated for close to a year by the Russians. Uh, she uh, announced a very important resolution concerning her future. This is clip 1A. Well, I can say for me, I'm, I'm never going overseas to play again unless I'm representing my country uh, at the Olympics. You know, uh, if, I, if I make that team, that would be the only time I would, I would leave the U.S. soil, um, and that's just to represent the USA. Um, I'll say this, you know, the whole reason a lot of us go over, you know, is the pay gap. Um, you know, a lot of us go over there to, to make an income to support our families, um, to, support our, our, to support ourselves. Um, so I don't knock any player that wants to go overseas and, you know, make a little bit um, extra money. I'm hoping that our league continues to grow and with as many people in here right now covering this I hope you continue like I said to cover our league bring exposure to us I hope a lot of these companies start to invest in our craft because um, as you'll see this season if you haven't watched before we have a really good craft and uh, let us uh, hope that uh, maybe Brittany, Brittany Griner returning 
to basketball will help to encourage the Wall Street Journal reporter who's being held now, uh, will encourage Paul Whelan, who is being held now by the Russians, uh, to get them home. And this at a time when uh, there was an attack, a terrible, devastating attack on a Ukrainian parliament building by the, the Russian government. And it is... It is extraordinary, it seems to me, that uh, there are Americans who who simply do not see that uh, what is going on in Ukraine uh, and the struggle for survival, especially coming up to a counteroffensive, which could make a huge difference, that this is a struggle, not a territorial dispute as... Governor DeSantis uh, seems to me irresponsibly suggested or stigmatized it. This is a, uh, a fight for right and wrong against uh, uh, decency and positivity and liberty and uh, a, a, an increasingly nightmarish regime where Alexei Navalny, the uh, leading voice against Putin, is looking at a lengthening of his sentence and his or ordeal and his sentence for what for speaking out with questions about the president now of course you can have all kinds of questions about the president about presidential candidates that will be coming up on the michael medved show but is a way to win politically uh boycotts and regulations because this is increasingly something that right-wing people have turned to. Is that a good idea? We will get to that. Uh, we will also get to the reappearance of Tucker Carlson. To say what exactly? People are trying to read the tea leaves and figure out what he has in mind. We will get to that and to much more uh, coming up in this greatest nation on God's green earth. For special discounts on history shows, check out medvithistorystore.com.